Hey, great to see you guys back out here tonight. Thrilled to be able to dive into this conversation with you. This has been such fun for me, getting to sort of play at Dr. Jones a little bit with you guys. So thanks for uh, showing up and engaging the conversation. Uh, tonight, we're going to be talking about the meaning of the cross. And uh, really, when we even say the meaning of the cross, we have to recognize that we're talking about more than just the cross. Um, Paul will even say in 1 Corinthians 15 that if all we have is the cross, if we don't have the resurrection, we have nothing. Right? If Christ is not raised, then, then we are still in our sin, right? That we have no hope. Um, so we're talking tonight about the atoning work of Jesus, the, the full package of what Christ has done. And I'll begin defining some terms for, uh, with you in just a little bit, and we'll dive in. But before we do that, diving into the topic, just want to uh, reintroduce uh, my friend Nancy. Some of you maybe that are new this week, you haven't gotten a chance to, to hear from Nancy along the way. But uh, Nancy and I have been friends for about six years. Started out um, that I was professor and she was student, and, and then sort of grew to mentor and protege. And yet, just over the course of these years, developed a really deep friendship. And occasionally, it still brings a big smile to my face when she refers to me as mentor. And yet, in so many ways, she mentors me. I have learned so much from her through the years. And even learned so much from her doing this together over these weeks. And so it brings me great joy for us to get to do this together tonight. So tonight is Nancy's last night with us in this series. But she's been such a gift to me and I think to all of us uh, in these days. Can we just welcome Nancy tonight? All right, so we want to dive in and talk about the meaning of the cross. And... Uh, let me open up to my notes page here, and I hope you have your Bibles. I hope you have a notebooks ready to kind of capture some of this. In, uh, in our Sunday morning services, we are doing this sermon series called The Story of God, where we are walking from the beginning of the end, talking about the idea that the Bible is a diverse collection of writings written over several centuries by many different authors, and yet it tells a consistent story. And so we've been telling that story from start to finish. And this last week, we, we really talked about the climax of the story, in the, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. And yet, there's really uh, only so much that I can cover in a 30-minute sermon. And, uh, and there's so much more to be said. And that's been the case as we're walking through week after week in this series. Is that there's just a lot more to be said. And so we've carved out this space with the young adults and inviting the honorary young adults to join us to explore some of that, what more there is to say. Each week, I have felt like, while we've gone deeper, that, that we could still go deeper still. And maybe at some point in the future, we'll have an opportunity to do some more of that. But this week, we want to go deeper on the subject of uh, the cross. And uh, I think you've heard me in this series, you've heard me, if you've been around IBC for very long at all, talk about this theme that I see woven throughout the pages of the Bible, this theme of shalom, the way things are supposed to be that we see in the garden story, the way things will be one day when we get to the end of the biblical story, uh, everything being the way that it's supposed to be in accord with God's intention. Um, shalom is, is peace, but it's more than that. It's wholeness and harmony and flourishing and delight and, and justice. And I love what Cornelius Planticus says about this when he says, God wants shalom. And he'll pay any price to get it back. Human sin is stubborn, but not as stubborn as the grace of God. And we talk about the atoning work of Jesus. We talk about the cross and the resurrection. We're talking about the extent to which God is willing to go to bring shalom. 
Dietrich Bonhoeffer says it this way. He says, the renewal of the earth begins at Golgotha, where the meek one died, and from thence it will spread. We're talking about the central event in human history, the cross and resurrection of Jesus. And uh, it brings me great joy to talk about this because it is joyful, but it also is, is, is heavy um, to, to face the reality of the extent to which God was willing to go in order to, to bring atonement. And so let me begin just by talking about this word atonement, uh, because what we're going to do tonight is we're going to explore five different aspects of the atonement. Uh, sometimes this idea of atonement gets shrunken down. We've talked about that each week, the way we tend to shrink concepts down. And tonight what we want to do is we want to hold up this concept of atonement and see it as, as a multifaceted diamond. There are several different facets. We're going to talk about five of them tonight. Uh, and Nancy, who's working on her PhD in theology, could tell you there's a whole lot more than just these five, but we want to leave you with a deeper understanding of these five. But when we talk about atonement, you actually can see something of the meaning of the word in the word itself. I've, I've put it on the screen for you here with these little dots to give you a sense of what this word really means. And that is at one meant, right? What God has done to bring us to himself, to, to make us at one with him. And the way he's done that through the incarnation, the crucifixion, and the resurrection of Jesus. I love the way that Gab Gabriel Fakra, theologian, puts it. He says, Christ liberates us from sin, evil, and death and makes possible the reconciliation, the at-one-ment of humanity, nature, and God. This is what Jesus has come to do. And it's important for us to recognize these aspects of it before we focus our attention maybe a little bit more uh, on the cross to say, first of all, the incarnation is the necessary precondition of this atonement. To, to bring us at one to one with God, first, we have to talk about the incarnation, this big theological concept that really just comes down to the idea that Jesus is God in the flesh. Um, Jesus is fully God and fully human. And only by being both fully God and fully human can God bring us to at-one-ment with himself, right? That, that Jesus has entered into this world, the, the divine son taking on flesh to dwell among us. And we talked about that a little in the sermon uh, on Sunday. We don't have atonement if Jesus is just, uh, 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 just a human being, if Jesus is just a good moral teacher, if he's just a good moral example, we don't actually have atonement. We have atonement because Jesus is both fully God and fully human. The incarnation is its necessary precondition. The crucifixion is its means of accomplishment. The, the means by which God accomplishes this at-one-ment is through the work of Christ on the cross. But the resurrection is its efficacious confirmation. Um, and that, that word efficacious is really important, to make effective. That, uh, as I said at the top, apart from the resurrection, the cross is mere tragedy. The, the cross is meaningless. The cross accomplishes nothing if Jesus stays in the grave. But through his resurrection from the dead, it makes possible all then that God has accomplished for us. It is the efficacious, making effective, the efficacious confirmation of the atoning work of Jesus. And I want to just pause there and say any, anything you want to add or nuance or um, uh, expand on what we've said so far. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm really glad that we cover all three of these um 
aspects, because I think you and I talked about this earlier yeah. today. Um, if we stop at the cross, we we don't have Christianity yeah. at the cross, right? We, it doesn't come. So like we talked about this, you call it um, the climax of the story. Yeah. I want to call it a cliffhanger. <laughs> so that what happens on Easter Friday, on Good Friday, is actually a cliffhanger because nobody understands it. Yeah. And then we get... Resurrection Sunday, Sunday. Yeah. and then that puts everything. So we have our atonement theories because there was a resurrection. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, there's a uh, there's a contemporary uh, worship song that we don't sing around here, and I've made sure that we don't sing it around here. I think our team knows better than to sing around here. Um, and it's one of those that when you hear it, it says something that seems really profound and beautiful and moving, but it's wrong. And it's, it's the song that says, the cross has the final word. And if the cross had the final word, we would be hopeless. <laughs> it's the resurrection that has the final word. And so uh, what, what Jesus did for us on the cross is meaningless apart from the resurrection. Hopefully, right, that makes sense. That, that, that if Christ is still in the grave, Paul says, we are still in our sin. We are hopeless. And so these three go together. Incarnation. Um, uh, Christ taking on flesh to dwell among us, fully God, fully human. Crucifixion, the suffering that Jesus endures upon the cross, and then resurrection, his triumphing over sin and death uh, through the resurrection. So let's get into it, and let's talk about these kind of five aspects. Think about that, that idea of a diamond, that we're going to hold up the diamond, and we're going to look at different facets of it tonight. And five of those that we're going to look at are going to be ransom, Christ our ransom, Christ our substitute, Christ our victor, Christ our peace, and then Christ our example. And uh, we're not going to get all into the nuances of history, but what you find is as you look at what um, theologians and church leaders have said down through the centuries is they're trying to make sense of what, what does the cross mean? And at different times, different ones of these theories kind of came to the fore, came to the, to the, to the front. Um, but what we're trying to kind of explore tonight is the way in which all of these actually fit together. And in fact, if you don't have them all together, um, you're really misunderstanding what God did. And so we're going to start with uh, ransom. Nancy, you want to kind of run us through that idea of Christ, our ransom. Yeah, so this, this um, atonement theory is what these are called, right? It has a long history in the church. We see it really, really early on. So people, if, if you've heard of people like Origen back in the third century, they're all kind of connected to this theory. But basically, all that means is that it has a long history in the teachings of the church. And there's good reason for that. And we'll talk a little bit about the scriptures that kind of help develop some of these ideas. But here's the general idea for us to remember to kind of understand what's happening. And so the, and I don't know if this is exact, do you want me to kind of talk about what, what has historically been connected with a ransom theory? Go for it. Okay. All right. I think that's helpful. Okay. Well, um, I, I think historically the idea is that because of our sin, because of human sin, humanity is under Satan's dominion. And so, but because God loves us, he offers his son to sometimes to the devil is, is kind of historically the most popular view as a ransom to set humanity free. So the evil, uh, the evil one was more than glad to make the exchange because the understanding is he doesn't know that Jesus can't be held by death. And so he kind of enters into this weird kind of like arrangement. And then with the resurrection, of course, 
the ransom is paid and then humanity is set free. That's kind of the way that it's been framed historically. Um, you might see some differences between some, some theologians are going to say the ransom is paid to the devil. Others are going to say, no, the ransom is paid to God. Uh, but the idea is that there is... Um, Justice requires that God be paid, and so that Jesus Christ makes the payment. Is there something yeah. you want to add? Yeah, no, I mean, and even thinking about the, the, the language of ransom, even as you see it in the Old Testament, right, before Jesus, conveys this idea of a price paid to buy freedom, right? A person who is held in captivity can be ransomed, a price paid to buy their freedom. A person who's held in slavery, a price can be paid to buy their freedom. And so when you get to the New Testament, you get to um, the work of Jesus. It, it, it's this idea that Jesus has paid the price to buy our freedom. Yeah, and I think that, I, so the idea of ransom is is very connected to scripture, right? So we do see that. So I think you, you have these in your notes, and I just borrowed it from my professor. Uh, but Mark 10, 45 says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So there is this, this um, scriptural foundation that, that is the building block for these developments. And then what we have to understand is all of these series, they don't develop in a vacuum. They develop under very specific cultural events and times that are connected to why they develop in certain ways. But the idea that Jesus Christ pays a ransom, that's something that we accept because scripture reveals it. Um, another place you can go to, 1 Corinthians 6, right? It says, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? Who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor, honor God with your body. So this idea that there has been a payment that has been made, is all tied up in this idea of ransom. And that is, it's also redemption language. Redemption has kind of this um, financial like exchange language that goes together that's really rooted in scripture and the different stories that we find there. Yeah, I, um, listening to you talk, my, the mental uh, picture that came into my mind is from uh, the Chronicles of Narnia. And remember reading that to my kids when they were little. And there's aspects of each of these theories in some sense that's conveyed in the story of Aslan. But um, if you remember the story at all or if you've seen the movies, right, Edmund is held captive by the witch. And Aslan says, I'm willing to pay the price to buy Edmund's freedom. And that's part of what this particular facet of that diamond of uh, atonement really is all about is to say we are we are captive to sin and death and Christ was willing to pay the price to buy our freedom. Um, I hear in that, so there's that um, quotation you like from C.S. Lewis. You just yeah. shared it with us yeah, yeah, on yeah. Sunday. You right. want to share it again? Yeah, so Lewis says, Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed, you might say in disguise, and is calling us all to his great campaign of sabotage. Yeah, and I think there's something there that we're under this dominion. We're not free. We're enslaved. And and if you go back and listen to our slavery talk, that is all connecting. And so yeah. you start seeing yeah. it. One of the things that we mentioned was that the language of slavery doesn't just apply to specific people in the Bible. It's also used very much as an image to help us understand our relationship with God. And so and to some extent, some of that is that we are slaves to sin, you know, Paul is going to talk, you're slaves to sin, but you have been redeemed from that. And that, that is part of the way that we understand Christ's work on our behalf. Yeah. That aspect, I mean, part of what we talked about with slavery is 
um, that, that there was nothing the slave could do themselves, right? Yeah. There was a sense in which in, in their own power, they're helpless. And I think that's part of what we have to recognize when we come to, to think about and talk about the cross is that in and of ourselves, we are in this helpless, hopeless position under the dominion, the power, the authority, the slavery is the image that the Bible uses toward sin and nothing we can do to liberate ourselves. And that's why we need a savior who's willing to come along and say, I will pay the price um, to, to purchase your freedom. And so, and, and it's, I think it's an important facet of this is the church is kind of, as we've wrestled with these ideas historically, some theologians have kind of pushed back on the idea that the, the thought that God would owe anything to the devil, right? And so you see kind of developments that say the general idea is that we are captive, that there is something that is separating us and, God, and Christ has atoned for that, provided for that through this ransom. So there is, I just wanted to make sure that it's clear, like there's, there's the theological wiggle room. I've kind of focused on some of the historical understanding, the way the church has taught it and the way that, you know, some people still teach it. This is not, it's not held as much today. Really, we're going to talk about substitution next. And, and um, so ransom is kind of not the way, it's not the key um, atonement theory that's generally held by the majority of, P- of Christians today, but the language of ransom, ransom, I think, is really, really important to our understanding of the gospel. And yeah, this idea that we have been set free, right, we have been liberated, is a really important concept. And the, the passage you read there gives us then even a therefore, right, in light of this reality. Particularly, he's saying there, this, this, this has been an incredibly high price, that's been paid for you. So you should sit with the, the gravity, the reality of the price paid on your behalf. Therefore, honor God with your bodies, right? In light of the fact that he has done so much to pay for your freedom, live in that freedom. Don't return again to slavery, to sin. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. And so I think that's really important for us to even think about as we talk about, think about theories of the atonement, as we think about, talk about um, what Christ has done on the cross is each one of these has an important kind of therefore, like in light of this reality, here's how we live. We don't, it's not merely about our understanding, um, but it also has even ethical implications um, for how we live. Yeah. And if I can just frame that for a second from the perspective of a a New Testament Greco-Roman culture, right? These cultures are very obligation driven. I think you and I, I'm I'm Mexican-American, Barry's not. Um, and, and so like this comes yeah. up, my, my husband is from, he's African-American and it comes up in ours. So Mexican culture is highly, highly obligation driven, right? Mexico would not function without obligation. It's just part of being a highly communal culture. And so to some extent, the first century cultures really hear this. So here's what happens when Paul is saying, hey, therefore do this. What he's saying is something has been done for you. And the listeners of the first century are saying, this makes me obligated. And this isn't like a coercive yeah, obligation. Yeah. It is a, a, an obligation of gratitude. It's mm-hmm. a recognition that someone has shown favor on me. And for me to be a good recipient, it is to actually value it. So even when we talk about 
grace and all of these big concepts um, that Paul asks for a response from the Christian community, it's really built into the culture that there is a, a right way to respond to someone gifting you something like your own freedom. And so it's, it's very much expected and it's not, I just want to make sure it's not a coercive kind of like, well, I did this for you, so now you better you yeah, know, yeah. respond properly, yeah. but it's kind of understood in the way that the entire culture um, functions in the first century, right? And I think that it would have been heard very, very weighty. Christ has done something, and now the only rightful way to respond as a good member of the community is to live in a way that actually shows that you understand the weightiness of the gift. So good. So good. So that's ransom, right? Christ has paid a price to buy our freedom. And that's part of what was accomplished for us in the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. Let's, uh, let's shift then. Oops, I didn't click through my slides. Um, let's shift then and talk a little bit about substitute. I put this one second on the list uh, merely to try to, to really highlight that idea that there's more to it than just this. And, and the reason that's important is that in many churches and many traditions, when you talk about the cross, when you talk about atonement, they tend to focus almost exclusively on this one. That is Christ as our substitute, that he took our place. And particularly a, a, a um, even more narrow conception of that, uh, uh, penal substitution, that is he, he took our place to pay our penalty. And certainly there's an aspect of what we see as well, I'll show you in a couple of passages, that Christ died in our place. He died um, for us as our substitute. And yet we have to be really careful that we don't, again, shrink down the concept of atonement and miss the so much more that's there for us. But when we come to thinking about Christ, our substitute, we can point to a few different places in the Bible. One of them uh, that's so powerful is actually to go to Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah 53, um, Isaiah is writing, Isaiah the prophet writing uh, 700 years before Jesus, but he prophetically in this poem depicts what's going to happen to Jesus, the, the suffering servant. And listen to what he says. He says, surely he, Jesus, surely he took our pain and he bore our suffering. We considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us shalom was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Right? This idea that that, that, that which is ours, our, our sin our shame gets taken from us and on the cross put upon him that he is our substitute, um, that he dies in our place. He took our pain. He took our suffering. Um, he took our transgressions. He took our iniquities. Uh, the, the punishment that brought us shalom was put upon him. Christ our substitute. You see this, of course, also in places in the New Testament. Uh, one example would be Romans chapter 5, verse 6 through 8. And Paul is writing here about Jesus, and he says, You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for 
the ungodly. He, but he died in our place, in the, in the place of us, who, uh, the ungodly. Christ died for us. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for this, for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Right? He's, he's pointing out this reality that sometimes if there's somebody that's good and somebody that you love, you might step in and, and die in their place. But that we weren't, um, we weren't in the position where we were good and noble and, 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 and worthy of this because of our, um, our moral performance. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It goes back again to um, the, uh, the, the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. Um, Edmund was uh, a captive and the, the, uh, the, 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 the rule of the land was that he had to die for his transgression. Um, there was nothing about him that made him um, noble or that he had earned what Aslan was willing to do uh, for him, that that was an act of sheer grace to take his place as his substitute. And this is what this idea of substitution means. Now, it gets complicated, and I want to point to that in a minute, but I want to pause and just see if there's anything, Nancy, you want to add to what we said so far. I mean, I was just going to add the hard stuff, yeah. which, yeah. so it sounds like you're going to go, go in there. that direction. Go yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, this is part of, of, like, this is the most popular and most widely held. Well, actually, the hard stuff he's about to talk about is the most popular and widely held atonement theory currently, so yeah. I'm just going to okay. let you go yeah. there. Okay. Um, let me offer just a couple of other passages that, that I think point to this idea of Christ our substitute. Um, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, Paul writes that God made him, that is Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Right? So it's this idea that God made him who knew no sin, that's Jesus, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God in some important sense, took what was ours, our sin, our shame, and he put it upon Jesus so that he could take what was Jesus, his righteousness, and put it upon us. Now, where this gets complicated, where this gets messy, and where this will be perhaps even a, a struggle for some of your friends, or maybe even for some of you, I grew up with this being the meaning of the cross, right? Christ died in our place, that he died for our sin, um, that he took my penalty, my punishment, um, for me. And many today wrestle with this because for some, this sounds like divine child abuse. And I think if you've grown up in the church, maybe this just, well, of course, Barry, that, that makes sense to me. And yet many, many people hear this and find it deeply problematic. It sounds like divine child abuse. If I, as a dad, was angry with one of my kids, and I took it out on the other one, we'd call that abusive. And so some people hear this, this idea that Jesus took our penalty, took our punishment, that God the Father inflicts the punishment on God the Son, it sounds like um, he got what was ours. That sounds like divine child abuse. Um, I think we all need to sort of sit with that, with the gravity of that, to sit with the idea of how do we engage with our friends and our neighbors for whom it may sound like that, even if we've grown up hearing this and never, never thinking twice about it in some sense. Um, now, I, I, I want to get at what I think uh, is underneath that, how we respond to that, but 
Uh, I, I wonder, Nancy, if there's anything yeah. you want to add to it or um, if you want to begin getting us towards how do we reply to yeah. it. Yeah, no, actually, I want to dif make some yeah. differentiation between substitution as a model or, or a theory and, and a more specific, and I'm going to use the words, I don't know if you wanted me yeah. to introduce this, but too late. Sure substitutionary, uh, penal substitutionary atonement. And I, I actually would differentiate yeah. between that, right? So substitution is, um, is very much an aspect that I, I'm going to argue with maybe some of the theologians that see substitution everywhere because I see it everyone, regardless of what theory you're looking at, it's still Christ acting in a way in, that we are supposed place. to, right? Yeah. So even we talked about ransom is that Christ paid the ransom because we could not pay the ransom. And we're going to talk about it. And so you can have kind of substitution running through as this common denominator, regardless of the theory that you're talking about. What Barry is talking about is penal substitutionary atonement. And this is, um, this is the most widely held substitutionary atonement theory, especially amongst evangelicals. So our uh, Roman, uh, Roman Catholic brothers and sisters and our Orthodox brothers and sisters vehemently reject this kind of, this uh, atonement theory precisely because of the issues that Barry just brings up, right? Um, there are some very serious accusations that say, if this is how God acts, then God is just a really abusive parent. Um, and I think what happens, this is born out of the Reformation, um, and it's tied to all sorts of wrestlings. I, you know, we, if you know anything about Luther, he highly, highly struggles with the wrath of God, and so that plays into it. Um, but it's also kind of brought out of passages like Barry just read, right? So Isaiah 53 says, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. And I think we, we skip over the yet we considered him and we just say he was punished by God, he was stricken by him, and he was afflicted. But that's not actually what we read in Isaiah. Um, and, and that I think is really important because uh, the world looks at, and actually the scripture says this, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. So I think sometimes that that imagery is picked up and we don't place it within the entire story of redemption. We don't place it within Christ's story of his work in our Christology. Um, and we say, look, God has cursed his own son. God has punished him, stricken him, and afflicted him. And, and I just really want to emphasize that that is not necessarily what, what we're dealing with, right? That, I mean, I'm going to reject that altogether. The fact that God is an, an abusive father, that he is a cosmic child abuser, is, is just not the way that I yeah. would read it. And my emphasis there would be, especially in Isaiah, it's that what we see, and this is what you do see, right? This is why I call uh, Good Friday a cliffhanger, because when Christ dies... This is what we think. Yeah. There's curse and punishment and affliction and abandonment. But that's just Friday. Yeah, so good. So the way that I think about responding to this accusation of this is divine child abuse, what's problematic about that is it sets up this, this real sort of dichotomy between God the Father and God the Son. Uh, God the Father is the one who is angry, filled with wrath, 
and he's got to figure out something to do with his wrath and chooses to pour out that wrath on the son. And the son in that scenario becomes the, the sort of helpless, passive recipient. Again, going back to the scenario, if it was in my family, um, this would set me against my child. But that's not what you have when you think about the nature of God, the, the, the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. You don't have this, this dichotomy, this separation between the two that um, what the Father does, the Son does. What the Son does, the Father does. What the Spirit does, that, 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 that there is not this division, angry Father, passive recipient Son, but rather the, um, the active engagement of God in this process of redemption. A, a quotation from a theologian named Gabriel Fakhar that has helped me to think this through goes like this. He says, what is done to Jesus of Nazareth at Calvary is done to God, right? Jesus isn't passive in this process. This is God acting on our behalf. The nails that pierced his hands are driven into deity itself. The blood of Jesus is the blood of God. The sacrificial victim is the lamb of God. One gasps at the horror of this happening. Our assaults reach into the Godhead itself. This is the measure of our sin. Just as it was God's own heart that was broken by our sin, so it is God's own heart that takes into itself the consequences of that sin. The consequences, the wages of sin are death. In the righteousness of God, there can be no possible evasion of the scales of this justice. Death follows sin as night follows day. The aggression of the human race against the purposes of God is not indulged, not overlooked, not waved aside, and not winked at. But the miracle of Calvary is that God, the judge, goes into the dock for the sentencing. It is in deity that the consequences of our sin fall. It is in deity that the price is paid. Here the judgment that befits our crime was meted out, received, and absorbed. This is not angry father, passive son. This is the, the work of God, the work of the triune God um, who have uh, conceived and executed this plan of atonement, um, this idea of being our substitute. Anything yeah, from you I on that? Um, yes, I, I just want to make sure that we clarify that um, Barry is, and, and Falker are saying it is, it is the Godhead, it is the divinity, is God who, who is crucified that's kind of been held historically. Augustine will think that. Um, uh, Gregory the Great will say that. All, all these people, it's part of our Christology. What we're not saying is that the, it's the father also yes. died, right? So that's not, we do right. say the son died, yes. the father does not die, God dies because the son is God, because Jesus is the God man. So I just want to make sure that we're really clear right. because that's like a really ancient heresy yes. and we're not teaching heresy right. tonight. Yes. Um, so I just wanted to, because, yeah. because we hear God right. and we don't differentiate between the yes. persons. And so so what, what, what Barry is saying is that God in unity dies, yeah. but it's not the father that dies, yes. it is the son. It, it, so yeah, what I'm, what I'm trying to indicate is that there's not separate wills that they, right. Right, that they're at odds with each other in some sense. 
but actually rather have, so yes, but yes, this, this idea that it's the father that dies on the cross, God the father dies on the cross, historically is called patropassianism, the, the passion of the father, and it's rejected as heresy. It's Jesus the son that dies on the cross. I'll never forget being at a church a number of years ago, not this church, um, but uh, another church, and we were singing that uh, really beautiful uh, contemporary worship song, um, Oh gosh, how how the lyric go? Um, uh, you are my king. Uh, I'm forgiven because you were forsaken. I'm accepted. You were condemned. I'm alive and well. The spirit is within me because you died and rose again. Amazing love. How can it be that you, my king, would die for me? Uh, amazing love. Uh, I know it's true, and it's my joy to honor you. And so we're singing this, and you know, hands raised, eyes closed, and the worship leader, who didn't mean to commit heresy. Um, but he's strumming his guitar and he, he just, he says, sing it to the father. And I'm going, no, <laughs> right? It is the son, Christ, the son who has, who has done all that, who has died in our place as our substitute. So we want to keep that clear distinction of persons, uh, father, son, Holy spirit. And we could do another night on Trinitarianism, which might be uh, important and helpful, but we don't want to set them at, at odds as though they have, um, they're at odds with each other. Angry father, passive son. Right, and, and you do see Jesus, you know, the scriptures say he offered himself, right? So he is active yes. in the work. He's not, he's not, because if you remember back, Sam, a couple of weeks ago, he talked about how God completely judges and rejects human sacrifice. And that's basically what these accusations make God. They say you are accepting a human sacrifice. And so if, if I can have a second, um, I think this passage from um, Paul in 2 Corinthians is really, really important. I think that what we get is an imagery here. God made him who had no sin to be sin. And so I really see in this kind of the personification of sin and the death of sin, right? So Paul has been saying um, sin gives birth to death, right? When sin, sin is fully growth, it gives birth to death. And this is part of the imagery that God, that Paul helps us understand. And then what you see in Christ is that he takes on sin. He says he becomes sin and sin dies, Sin dies once and for all. And I think that is a really significant part. He doesn't say he became you and then puts you to death, but he actually personifies the enemy. It is sin that is the enemy. It is death. And so if sin dies, death dies yeah. because it cannot, it cannot be fully. One last comment about substitution or at least penal substitution is that this seems to, the argument seems to, the atonement works on, on God rather than on, on sin, right? So the, the action is done that Christ is doing something to appease God, to placate God, and this is part of the way that it's sometimes um, structured or viewed or explained. And, and that's really important that we kind of reject that idea that is somehow God has to be changed in order for us to be able to have at one man, right? Mm -hmm. To be at one with him. And that's, I, I think that that's not something that we see in scripture. It's not that God has to be changed, it's that there is this thing called sin that we have brought into the world and that needs to die. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That's good. So what you were saying a minute ago about uh, death, uh, a sin dying uh, on the cross because Jesus became sin for us. Uh, I think then leads us really uh, nicely into the, uh, the next slide uh, about uh, Christ, our victor, um, that Christ took 
took sin upon himself, sin dies, and then triumphs over sin through the resurrection. So this particular theory um, really uh, strongly connects cross and resurrection and Christ, the victor over sin and death. Tell us a little bit about this one. Yeah, so this theory basically is teaching that Christ dies in order to defeat the powers of evil. So this is sin, this is death, this is the devil. And in doing so, he frees a humankind from bondage. So um, this is kind of related to the ransom view, but it differs because there's no payment made here to the devil or to God. Um, it's, it's, it's a victory that's called Christus Victor because Christ is victorious over sin. So this is supported in our scriptures by passages like 1 John 3, 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Second uh, Timothy 1.10, our Savior Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So basically, there is this dominion of evil, and Christ is victorious over it. And this is what the cross accomplishes, or his work on the cross accomplishes. The way I like to talk about it is to say the part that he came to play was the conquering part, right? To conquer sin and death. So, you know, First John, um, if we take this to be John, the, the apostle John, who's Jesus, the one that the, the, the disciple Jesus loved, who puts his head on Christ's chest. Um, like John is the one who, if anybody's going to say the reason the son of God appeared, uh, I think John's a good candidate. He says the reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work, right? The part that he came to play was the conquering part. And I, I'll give you a picture where this aspect of the atonement really came home to me was a number of years ago, I had the opportunity with my family to travel to uh, Istanbul, Turkey. It was one of these trips that I was a seminary professor at the time, a trip I never thought I'd get to take to, to a place like uh, Istanbul. But here we are, we find ourselves in Istanbul. And, uh, and the, the backstory on that is I'm a seminary professor just barely scraping by, and my mother, who loves to travel and has some, some means to be able to do that, she wants to take her grandkids on a trip that they'll never forget, and she wants to enjoy that with them while she can, so she offers to take us on a Mediterranean cruise. Mom and dad get to come along to take the kids back when she's done with them, and it's one of those things when that's offered is like, you say, Yes, we'll take it. And uh, so we paid for ourselves, mom and dad, and she paid for the kids. And we set off on this cruise. But when she came to us, she told us, she was like, um, the only thing about this is it was originally, we got this great deal on it because it was originally supposed to go to Egypt. And it was at the time that the whole thing, the Arab Spring was happening in Egypt and nobody wanted to dock in Egypt for a couple of nights. And so she's like, so it's not going to Egypt and they've rerouted it to Istanbul. And she kind of said Istanbul, like we're going to be disappointed. And I'm like, are you kidding me, Istanbul? Because even though Istanbul isn't in the Bible, we're going to all these other Bible places. Even though Istanbul isn't in the Bible, it's a really important historical center of Christianity, um, formerly known as Constantinople. Uh, the king or emperor Constantine moves the center of the empire to Constantinople. So there's all these churches that through the years had been um, shifted to become mosques. And in the Eastern Christianity, what you had in a church is every wall and ceiling and archway would be covered with imagery, with iconography, depicting the, the stories of the Bible and depicting the work of Christ. And, uh, and so this little church called the Church of the Holy Savior in Korah, we go to visit it. It had become a mosque and had been whitewashed over, plastered over, and they'd gone in and made it a museum and uncovered all of these 
beautiful frescoes and mosaics that were just unbelievable. We walked through this one room and there's an arch on either side. And on one side, here's the, the, uh, the woman that we refer to her as the woman with the issue of blood. On the other side, here's Jairus' daughter being raised from the, just all these stories from the Bible and these images from Christian history. And then I walk in this little side chapel and I look up and just above uh, the, 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 um, the wall in this archway is this incredible image and written across the top of it in Greek is ha anastasis, right? The resurrection. And what you have is this image of Jesus coming up out of his tomb. And you could tell from the way that the image is, is painted that Jesus is coming up triumphantly out of his tomb. And he has his hands to the side. And he has in each of his hands, he's holding on to the wrist of uh, a man and a woman. And each of them are coming up out of their tombs. He's holding them by the wrist, pulling their from, them from their tombs. And this depiction is of Adam and of Eve. Right? In Eastern iconography, it wouldn't necessarily be like if you had a a camera taking a snapshot. This is theological truth being depicted through this art. So he's pulling humanity out of their tombs with him. And one of the details that I love the most about this image is their arms are extended, but their wrists are completely limp, right? They're, they're doing nothing to contribute to their own salvation. There's this recognition in the imagery that, that, that they can't save themselves, but Jesus triumphing over sin, triumphing over death, taking humanity with him through the resurrection. And then uh, the other thing that I love most about this image is in the dark shadows of Christ's tomb underneath his feet, you see in the darkness there this, this figure. Um, and you kind of go, what, what, what's happening there? And what you see is this figure has been bound. And it goes back to this story that Jesus tells where the Pharisees come to him, Jesus has been healing people, uh, liberating them from, from demon oppression. And the Pharisees come and say, You're drive, you drive out demons by the power of demons. That's what's happening here. You're from the devil and you're using the devil's power to drive out demons. And Jesus is like, that's crazy talk, right? Um, he says, um, uh, if he's, he uses this imagery of a kingdom. He says, um, a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. Right? So if I'm driving out demons by the power of demons, that's a kingdom divided against itself, and that's, that cannot stand. And then he shifts from this image of kingdom to the image of house. But again, important, that the, the, the two metaphors to describe the same reality, kingdom and house. He says, you can't, um, you can't enter a strong man's house and plunder that house until you what? Remember what he says? He says, until you bind the strong man. Right? The, the, the imagery that Jesus is using is this world that is rightfully intended to be the dominion of God, right? ruled over by God, its creator, has become the dominion of sin, death, and the devil. Right? It's become the devil's kingdom or the devil's house. And what Jesus has done is he has entered into the strong man's house in order to plunder that house, to, to, do, to reclaim what rightfully belongs to God. But the only way that he can do that is to bind the strong man. And here in the, ground, in the tomb underneath Jesus' feet is the strong man who has been bound. Jesus is triumphant over sin, death, and the devil. The part that he came to play is the conquering part, the triumphant part.
You're doing your Dr. Jones thing, so, so yeah, that's straight up Dr. Jones. I, I forgot the point I was going to make uh -oh, even. Uh-oh, uh -oh. Yeah. Um, I think I, w I was thinking about um, Hebrews says that um, Jesus Christ made the sacrifice once and for all in the way that we talk about it in the Fraser household is um, with the Old Testament sacrificial system, you would, you'd come and you make sacrifices for your sins, but you couldn't get your camel out of the temple parking lot before you needed to go back, right? Mm -hmm. Because somebody cuts you off in their camel and then you're mad and then you have to go back. And, and the idea is that we can't be victorious. Yeah. It's yeah. not as fancy as in Istanbul, sorry. <laughs> but. Um, you know, I think about that passage in 1 Corinthians 15. And this passage has come to mean a lot to me. Um, some of you that have been around for a while, you've heard me tell stories about walking with my dad through his uh, journey with cancer. And my dad um, died um, 20, uh, gosh, 20, it'll be 23 years coming up uh, later this year. Um, and then 10 years later, uh, my sister got the same form of cancer and died. And um, I remember when my dad passed away, our family gathered around um, his bed and I pulled out, just sort of instinctively reached in my backpack and pulled out my old Ryrie study Bible, blue Ryrie study Bible, and opened it up and read from 1 Corinthians 15. And it's all about the resurrection of Jesus. And because of the resurrection of Jesus, the promise, the hope that we have for resurrection, the promise of the resurrection of our bodies. And Paul gets to the end of that. And there is this glorious passage that is about the future. I think it's important to say, because sometimes we read it as though it's real now, it's present, and yet it's about the future, but it's made possible because of what Jesus did by triumphing over death. Um, Paul says, um, well, do you have the, that, that 1 Corinthians 15 passage in your notes? I didn't. Maybe I can find it real quick. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So this idea of Christ's victory means that one day, we who have suffered in this world because of the dominion of death, but that Jesus has come, entered the strong man's house to plunder the strong man's house, um, to reclaim what rightfully belongs, that one day, therefore, we will taunt death and we will say, where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? The reality is we still feel the sting of death now, right? Some of us know that sting all too well. We still feel the sting of death now, but one day we will taunt death and say, where are you at? <laughs> Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? Thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through Jesus Christ, our Lord. The part that he came to play was the conquering part, defeating sin, death, and the devil. I think we should, um, I, I'm just, I'm going to take yeah. over the discussion. I think we should move to the more, uh, to the example. Oh gosh, yeah. Because okay. we're running out of time and okay. I think that's a really important yeah. one. Yeah, so let me hit really quickly peace because it wouldn't be me talking about this if we didn't talk about peace. Right? I did try, y'all. Um, I tried. So it's really important to point, and I'll do this fast, but that we see this idea that what Christ has done through the cross is about bringing shalom, is about bringing peace. And Paul will talk about this uh, with reference to peace with God. Uh, Romans chapter five, uh, verse one and two. Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God. 
through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've gained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. So this theme of peace woven throughout the Bible, that the fall ruptures our peace with God. Well, Jesus, through the cross, has brought us to peace with God. But it's not just about peace with God. It also then makes possible peace between people. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14 through 17. The context here, Paul is writing about this, this deep-seated ethnic tension, hostility between Jews and Gentiles. And Paul says, he, that is Jesus, he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its command and regulations. His purpose, right? So the purpose of the cross in part is this, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and one body to reconcile both of them through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to those who were far away and peace to those who were near. What Ephesians 2 is telling us is that this one new multi-ethnic humanity, right, overcoming the, the ethnic hostility between Jew and Gentile, this one new multi-ethnic humanity is part of the purpose of the cross. And if we don't understand that, then we have not fully understood the cross itself. He's made peace with us and God. He's made possible peace between us and each other. And then there's even this cosmic sense of peace. Colossians 1, 20, I'm sorry, Colossians 1, 19 and 20. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him, that is in Jesus, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through the blood shed on the cross. This cosmic redemption, the whole of God's creation. And we'll talk about this more in the sermon in a couple of weeks. God's intention isn't to take this good world that he has made and sort of throw it on the cosmic dustbin, but actually to redeem, to reconcile the whole of his creation. And he's done that by making possible peace through the cross. Um, I'll skip a quote for the sake of the clock and we'll talk about example. I'm getting memories of always being like three weeks behind the <laughs> syllabus in class with you. Uh, um, you want to take this, the no, lead on this go one? Or you for take it. It? So, so we come to this last one, and this is the idea of Christ, our example, that the cross sets for us a kind of, this is referred to historically as the moral theory of the atonement, that Christ is our moral exemplar. And so his death on the cross is this example of self-sacrificial love, that he has taught us how to live and he teaches us how to die by by. And, and the thing about this theory of the atonement is by itself, it is bad news, right? By itself. And some have wanted to abstract it, to take it out from the rest of this the multifaceted diamond and say, no, this is really what the cross is all about. It's about Christ setting an example for us, self-sacrificial love. And if all we have in the cross is self-sacrificial love, we have terribly bad news, because the reality is we could never live up to it. And so when we come to thinking about the example that Christ has set for us in the cross, it is only when we put it under these other aspects of Christ's atoning work do we actually have good news, right? Only because Christ has paid our ransom for our freedom, only because Christ is our substitute, having, having died for us in our place, only because he has been victorious, only because he's made peace, only then can we come and talk about Christ as setting for us an example. But it's important to note that Jesus himself talked about the cross as an example for us. Um, Mark chapter 16, verse 24, Jesus told his disciples, 
If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Right? That Jesus himself says the cross is supposed to be um, uh, an example of the way that you are called to live as my followers. You're to take up your own cross. You're to die to yourself to follow me. You're to live a, a cruciform or cross-shaped life, a life of self-giving, sacrificial love. This is the fundamental posture of discipleship, a, a posture of self-giving, sacrificial love. And one way this plays out this idea of Christ, our example, is through this concept of the wounded healer. Some of you heard me talk about this before. I read a book by this title by Henry Nouwen, this idea of the wounded healer, as I sat by my dad's bedside the last three days of his life. He was in the hospital and was no longer really conscious or able to communicate. And I sat there and I read this little book and it was like a balm for my, um, for my soul. And the concept that Nouwen is communicating is the idea that God uses us, you and me, ordinary people, God uses us as instruments of his healing grace in the lives of other people as we make our wounds available to them. Right? God uses us as instruments of his healing grace in the lives of other people as we make our wounds available to them. And the ultimate example of this is Jesus himself, right? By his wounds. We are healed. Here's the, here's the way that Nowen puts it. He says, nobody, none of us, nobody escapes being wounded. We're all wounded people, whether physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, or otherwise. The main question is not, how can I hide my wounds so that we don't have to be embarrassed? But how can we put our woundedness to the service of others? When our wounds cease to be a source of shame and become a source of healing, we have become wounded healers. Jesus was God's wounded healer. Through his wounds, we are healed. Jesus' suffering and death brought joy and life. His humiliation brought glory. His rejection brought a community of love. As followers of Jesus, we can also allow our wounds to bring healing to others. Christ has set for us a powerful, beautiful example of the way he calls us to live, and that is to live our lives with self-giving, sacrificial love. And this is our response, right, to the good news of his atoning work on our behalf. Um, so Christ our ransom, Christ our substitute, Christ our victor, Christ our peace, Christ our example. N.T. Wright, in the quote that I read on Sunday, says this, the pain and tears of all the years are met together at Calvary. The sorrow of heaven joined with the anguish of earth, the forgiving love stored up in God's future was poured out into the present. The, the voices that echo in a million hearts crying for justice, longing for spirituality, eager for relationship, yearning for beauty, drew themselves together into a final scream of desolation. The death of Jesus of Nazareth as the king of the Jews, the bearer of Israel's destiny, the fulfillment of God's promises to his people of old is either the most stupid, senseless waste and misunderstanding the world has ever seen, which without the resurrection is the reality. It's either the most stupid, senseless waste, misunderstanding the world has ever seen, or is the fulcrum around which history turns. The reality is, is that Jesus, our ransom, our sacrifice, our victor, our peace, our example, 
has triumphed over sin and death. And that we live in response to that reality, lives filled with gratitude, um, lives of offering ourselves, offering our bodies as living sacrifices, um, lives of worship, uh, knowing that there is coming a day, that because of the work that Jesus has done on our behalf, there is coming a day when everything wrong with this world will be made right and everything broken with this world will be made whole and everything marred in this world will be made beautiful because he is our ransom, our substitute, our victor, our peace, our example. So that's, uh, that's it for our presentation. I think Chad's gonna come and we've got some, uh, maybe some time for some questions. Yes. We didn't go too far over the clock, so. <laughs> yes, uh, no Camille, but I think I can ask Okay, I think you can do it. So sorry to We have confidence in you, Yeah, Chad. all right. Uh, all right. Well, y'all are on it with the questions tonight, so thank y'all for asking some really good ones. So the first one is, if uh, it was Jesus' will to die on the cross, why does he pray so strongly to let it pass just before? That's a good question. Dr. Frazier? <laughs> um, so this, this is one of the big questions, I think, in Christology, right? So this is just the study of Christ and the meaning of his uh, life and work and death and resurrection. And, um, and so I think sometimes what we do is that we, we either emphasize um, the divinity of Christ he is God, um, and so we kind of see him as, as distant from us to some extent, or we overemphasize the humanity of God. He is just a human man. Um, this kind of plays into some of the uh, um, moral influence theory. Um, but what we see is, is the scriptures show us a God-man, right? Um, this is one of my entrance exams to the PhD that I failed because my professors asked me, is Jesus God? And I said, yes. And they asked me four times the same exact question and apparently I got it wrong. Because the, the answer to the question, is Jesus God, is no, Jesus is the God-man, right? Really picky professor, but... Um, <laughs> But there's validity in the question. And what you see, and I think what we see in the garden is actually the reality of Christ's humanity, is that he truly does experience the anxiety of what that means. Um, so is it, is it a rejection of his will? Um, the thing is that if we really want to get technical, we, we say in, in the Orthodox teaching that Jesus Christ has two wills, right? God has one will. Jesus Christ has two wills. There is the divine will of the Godhead and the human will. Um, and so you see this kind of wrestling, but what you see is the subordination of the human will to, to the divine will. And I think, I think this is one of the, the passages that should really help us to connect to the reality of Christ's humanity, is that it's not, is that you see some you, he sees the thing and it's, it's going to hurt and it's going to be hard and it's going to be scary. And he's honest about it. He says, hey, I, can we, it, is there really no other way? And then he says, you know, but I'm, I'm going to do this if this is what it's going to cost. I don't know if that really answers. I think the answer is because he's, he is as much human as he is divine. And the humanity means that he feels the anxiety, he feels the fear, um, or else we have pr a problem with other passages in scripture that says that he knows our experiences and he feels them yeah. um, deeply. 
I would answer exactly the same way, but not as articulately as you just did. So that was awesome. It was good. Yeah, that was great. Thanks. Uh, our next question is, does the ransom theory include some sort of spiritual payment in addition to the physical, i.e. Jesus spending time in hell? Ah, the Jesus in hell question. <laughs> Dr. Was Jones? That, was, that on your, uh, was that on your exam by any chance? No, <laughs> it was not. So we have this affirmation in the uh, Apostles' Creed. Um, he descended into hell on the third day, rose again. And we have to wrestle with, okay, what? Jesus went to hell? Um, and, and we have, and I'm going to blank on the particular location of it, but there is a passage that talks about this descent of Christ, but scholars wrestle with what exactly is he descending into? Cause it's this, the, 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 the lower places. And I think that the better understanding of that is this descent of Christ is actually into earth. So rather than a literal descent into hell, this is part of the way the Bible is talking about Christ's coming into his incarnation as a fully human, fully divine, um, the God-man. Um, so his descent is into the, the lower places, but into the places of sin and death. And, and doing so then in Christ being victorious over sin and death, he is in fact liberating those who are uh, in bondage. He's making possible the deliverance um, from hell. So um, so I, I, I don't think what we actually have going on in the New Testament is a um, Christ spending time in hell itself, but is um, descending into uh, the world, uh, taking on uh, humanity, and then being victorious over sin and death makes possible liberation from sin and death. Um, you I, see what I mean about not being as articulate as you are? <laughs> well, I, I would want to ask some follow-up questions. I wish I could have a conversation with wh whomever this question uh, kind of symbolizes. But one of the things that I do want to say is we are, we are whole beings, right? We have this really bad tendency in Christian circles to sometimes divide ourselves into spiritual beings and physical beings and seeing that the Christ does either the, he covers over the physical things or the, or the spiritual things. And so my initial answer is, does any theory include some sort of spiritual payment in addition to the physical? Absolutely. In the sense that we, that, that the atonement covers all of our beings, right? We are meant to be embodied. We're both body and soul and spirit, right? We're all of it together. So we're not meant to be one without the other. So the atonement theories or the atonement in general, what we're, what we're looking forward to is the entire redemption of all of our being, right? We're not, we're not looking forward to like, oh, Jesus has done this thing. Now we get to be souls up in some weird disembodied cloud place with harps. I don't know. You know, that's, <laughs> that's just not, that's not what our scriptures teaches. We're, we are, those who have passed before us are waiting the renewal of their bodies. So the atonement covers over for spiritual, physical, cosmic, all of it yeah. um, is, is covered under the, the, the work of Christ. Good. Yeah, 1 Corinthians 15, again, this place that's talking about Christ's resurrection and our future, our hope for resurrection. Um, and so there is that sense in which ultimately what we're awaiting is what Tom Wright calls life after life after death. It is the resurrection of our bodies and a renewed material creation. And that's a preview for the sermon, not this Sunday, but the next, because we'll be talking about it's it. It's not the metaverse. Um, it's definitely not that. <laughs>
All right, yeah, I think we have time for one more. Um, so to be faithful to truth, should we choose one of these theories, reject some, or mix them together? Yeah, so my contention is that all of these are reflective of um, the teaching of the Scripture and that they really are like that multifaceted diamond, that we hold these together and recognize that in some sense, um, uh, each one gives us a, a deeper understanding of these others. Um, Ransom and Victor, for example, go very, very much together. Um, uh, victor and peace. It's because Christ is victorious over sin, death, and the devil that we are able to have peace with God, peace with one another, and this kind of sense of cosmic peace, um, the, the reconciliation of all things that we've talked about in, from Colossians there. So, um, yeah, so I think all of these really do belong together like that multifaceted diamond. Yeah, I think what the atonement theories are trying to do is um, it, it's just try to, so the scriptures give us all of these different pictures. I, I think that's what we've tried to do tonight is kind of show you, look at where, where we're getting this idea from scripture, right? The theories are developed and I think we really kind of tend to get in trouble when we start choosing one over the others. Because what we're doing, what we see in the scriptures is the, um, the author saying, we're trying to understand what, God, what Christ has done. And to help you understand it, let me give you different pictures to help you come to terms with it. And the reality is that it's so expansive. It's so, um, it, it's, it's such a huge thing that God has done through Christ that it can't, one picture doesn't cover all of it. And so that's what we get in, in the Bible, right? These different ideas to help us wrestle with what, it, what Christ has done for us and all the different ways that it impacts our lives. So I think definitely it would, I, I actually, Barry, do you think of like atonement theories when you're thinking about Christ's work on the cross? Like, I don't think in terms of theories, right? Like oh, okay. the last time yeah. I, like right. I talked, like, well, I totally stumped him. What are you asking um, me? <laughs> well, I mean, cause I don't think I'm, I'm yeah. thinking like, you know, uh, I, I'm reflecting on the work of Christ from a very like Christus Victor mm. kind of, like I, you just don't, yeah. I, us, I right. just don't think of it yeah. that way. I, re, I really don't, but they help us yeah. if we can hold more than the theories themselves. Yes. Yeah the images that they conjure up to help us understand what Christ has done. That's a really long winded. No, I'm, I'm turning into Barry. No. <laughs> so. uh, like your mentor. Um, but I um, did want to say examples. It does. It is problematic that it, it, if we just hold that one yeah, alone, that because one alone. it doesn't really give any atonement, atoning value to the cross, but it really gets a bad rap because the good thing about it, the example is that it takes all of Christ's life into account. That it, there's some saving and redemptive work in his incarnation, in his ministry, in his death, and in his resurrection. So it's not just the cross. And I think that it's, especially like in evangelical-ish uh, churches like IBC, um, we end up emphasizing the cross for really good reasons, but really we got we have an entire ministry. So, so yeah, there's no reason to pick and choose. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I will say at a personal level, um, the the Christus Victor has just taken on a deep sense of meaning for me personally. Not to say exclusive or to the neglect of the other. It's just to say it means so much to me precisely because of having walked with two of the most important people in my lives through, through the end of their life. And, and just to think about, because so much as a kid was all about Jesus died um, 
for, for your sins to, to bring forgiveness, but there's so much more than that. Yes, forgiveness, but also the hope of eternal life, the triumph over sin, death, and the devil. And then what that means for us again in terms of the ethical implications of that. He has come to bind the strong man, to plunder the strong man's house. And he's calling us to participate with him in the plundering of the strong man's house. Christianity is a story of how the rightful king has landed, you might say, in disguise. And it's calling us all to his great campaign of sabotage, right? Plundering the strong man's house. So um, can I have a final word before you come do the drawing? And that's just, once again, to uh, take a moment to just... Um, honor my friend and what a joy it has been to get to do this with you over the course of these weeks for your sacrifice um, to be here with us. Uh, Nancy is like the hardest working person that I know, working a couple of jobs and working on a PhD. And so she's made an enormous sacrifice to be here with us, but it's been such a joy for me to partner with you in this. So can we thank her one more time? And then I just want to point ahead to next week. Next week, I'm going to actually be up here uh, doing this kind of on my own. And part of the reason for that, next week, we're going to be talking about church and culture then and now. And talking about the ways in which we look back to the early church, the first century church, to learn important lessons for the 21st century church. And we're going to be talking about some pretty significant issues in our cultural moment about things like um, sexuality, politics, uh, life, uh, race, some of the really uh, touchy subjects in ways that I simply can't do oftentimes in 30 minutes in a sermon on a Sunday, but here we can go deeper into some of those topics. And I think when we look back to the early church, it actually provides enormously helpful and important perspective on some of these 21st century kinds of issues um, that we're uh, grappling with. So I hope you'll make plans to be a part uh, next week. I hope that you'll invite some other people. We're going to make a push on Sunday to hope to get even some more folks in addition to the people that are joining us through the podcast. So I'm looking forward to that one, church and culture then and now. So that's next week. Thank you, guys.